in his book titled At Home, Bill Bryson gives a short history of the home as he goes from room to room in his 1851 Victorian house. In addition to describing things such as why does the hallway have the name Hall and what is its purpose, Bryson then takes detours throughout the book to explore little bits of history, and he investigates different subjects in greater detail. But in order to set up the exploration of his 1851 home, he goes back to the original owner, who was an Anglican clergyman in Norfolk, England. Now, Bryson writes, at that time, in 1851, there were 17,621 clergymen in England. And a country rector, who this owner of this house would have been, who would have had about 250 or so uh, souls in his care, enjoyed an average income of 500 pounds. Now, Bryson gives a calculation for what 500 pounds in 1851 would be today, and he estimates that that would be around $630,000 per year. He continues and says that the role of the country clergy was a remarkably loose one. Piety was not necessarily a requirement or even an expectation. Ordination in the Church of England required a university degree, but most ministers read classics and didn't study divinity at all. And so they had no support and training in how to preach, to provide inspiration or solace, or otherwise offer meaningful Christian support. Many didn't even bother composing sermons, but just brought, bought a big book of prepared sermons and read one out once a week. He says, though no one intended it, the effect was to create a class of well-educated, wealthy people who had immense amounts of time on their hands. If you fast forward 150 years later, in England today, they are dealing with the fallout of a lackadaisical approach to ministry. Now, while some of his contemporaries, uh, being you know, Charles Spurgeon and J.C. Ryle, were much more prodigious than the typical country pastor, many others in leadership languished. And as they did, so did the people. And as we look around America, we might wonder about the fate of our evangelical churches. It seems as though many pastors in England lost the sense of their ministry focus and what they were called to do. The passage that we're going to look at tonight, Paul paints a different picture of what Bryson calls the clergyman. And here we will see Paul's attitude towards his job and the qualities that should reflect all of God's servant in his church. So turn to Colossians. We'll look at chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. Verse 24, chapter 1 of Colossians, we read, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Now in this passage we will see five necessary qualities of a church-minded pastor. And Paul says in verse 28 that his central objective, or his central mission, is to present every man complete in Christ. Now the five necessary qualities I'm going to go over is that the first one is that he must be savior appointed. Two is sermon focused. He must be spiritually concerned. He must be able to be sweat expended and spirit enabled. Now in verse 25, Paul says that he was made a minister. And the word for minister means a worker or a servant. It's the Greek word diakonos, which we get, you know, typical church word that we hear is deacon. And so a, a person who, that he, a minister is a, someone who is a worker in proclaiming the gospel. So a person who makes their living proclaim the gospel, in our day and age, we would, also, we would refer to him as a pastor. Now where do we get that term pastor? Because if you ask, you know, who is the uh, the leaders of your church, who are the ones that teach? That's the typical term that we usually employ. Now, the word for pastor is only translated, at least in the New American Standard, one time, which is in Ephesians 4.11. And in that letter, Paul said that God gave to the church some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Every other time that this word is translated... It is translated as shepherd. A shepherd is a person who looks after sheep. And the term sheep is often found in scripture to refer to God's people. And a shepherd refers to the person who cares for the sheep. If you recall when Jesus, at the end of his ministry, when he restored Peter in John 21, after, remember, Peter had denied Jesus, knowing Jesus, three times when Jesus was being tried, before he died, Jesus asked Peter in his restoration, he said, Peter, will you feed and tend my sheep? A sheep grazes in a pasture. And the word pasture comes from the same root word found in the Latin for pasture. And so Jesus asked Peter to be his sheep's shepherd or to be their pastor. Now, as we look at this portion of Scripture, we'll see the five necessary qualities of a church-minded pastor. And again, as we look at these qualities, they all flow into one central mission, which is that the pastor is used by God to help those in his care become complete in Christ. And as we explore these five qualities, I want you to ask yourself, is your pastor helping you in this? So the first quality that we see the first characteristic is that he is Savior appointed. And now if we look in verse 25, Paul says that he was made a minister according to the stewardship from God. Now the verb translated here, uh, was made, can also be translated became. Which means that Paul did not appoint himself to this task. He was made or he became a minister by someone else. It is Jesus who builds his church, and it is Jesus who appoints his ministers. 
Remember again that a minister is a worker. And the term minister has taken the term worker and applied it to a special kind of work. A doctor is just a worker. Now we know what kind of work that he or she does by the title that he or she has. And of course a person can be a doctor but not practice medicine. But typically when you use the term that someone is a doctor, we know what work that they are in. Well, how does a person become a minister? This is the technical term of a worker. And Paul implies a worker in the church. Now, how does a pastor become a pastor? Well, Paul first said he was made a minister by the stewardship from God. And so what was this stewardship? Well, Paul speaks in Ephesians specifically about this stewardship. And he refers this to the stewardship that it is the insight that he has been given and that the apostles were given, the disciples were given, and all the followers of Jesus Christ have been given, that through Jesus Christ, men and women may be made right with God. And when God saved Paul on his way to Damascus, on his way to persecute the church, Jesus told him that he would be his instrument to bear his name before the Gentiles and the kings of Israel. So is that how a pastor gets his job? Jesus tells him? Well, many believe that there is a, some sort of mystical appointment. I had a friend that uh, told me when I asked him, he was, a, he was uh, about 20 years older than me, and uh, he was a pastor, and I asked him you know, how he knew that he was called into the ministry. And he said, I remember sitting in church one day, and I felt like the finger of God was piercing me, like right here in his chest. And then he heard a voice that you would be a minister to the people of God. And so I told him at one point that I was thinking about going into the ministry. And he asked me if I had a similar experience. And when I told him no, he said he had doubts about my calling or that calling because I did not have a similar thing that he went through. Interestingly, I asked him, what does God sound like? Because I was curious. And apparently God sounded like an uncle of his. <laughs> but he had this experience and he felt that was how God called him into ministry. God rarely speaks to people in mystical ways. And I do believe that God places a burden on people's hearts for ministry. And that bar burden may feel mystical. But God also lays out practical opportunities. You know, in order to be a worker... God provides a work. And when the church needed men to look after neglected widows in Acts 6, the apostles told the people, I want you to select men who seem most qualified to do this work. There was a need, and these men filled it. So sometimes God works in that capacity. There's a work to be done, and he needs workers to do it. And sometimes it's as easy as stepping up to that plate. Others think that a degree means a person is entitled to be a pastor. Now, sure, a degree might prepare a pastor, but all a degree means is that the person was ready and capable of doing study and the academic side of the work for ministry, which is very important. I don't discount that. But a degree is not necessary. But I think it adds to an element that Paul was 
alluding to when he said that he was given a stewardship. Now, Paul was raised up as a Pharisee under the esteemed teacher Gamaliel. And he was well-versed in the law. He had the right pedigree because in Scripture we see that he was born under the tribe of Benjamin and he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was also a naturally born Roman citizen, which gave him certain freedoms and rights to travel and to preach. And all of these gave him greater opportunities for ministry. But Paul knew that these gifts were given to him not for his gain and not for upward mobility, but they were given solely to be used for the benefit of the church. Because Peter in 1 Peter 5.2 gives a caution. And when he talks about an elder, kind of you know, the overseers of the church, he says that an elder should shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntary, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Because a pastor in a church, he carries a lot of influence. The people are looking to the pastor because he's supposed to be a servant or a worker of God. But often a pastor is chosen because he is charismatic, or he's a strong leader, or he simply just wants to do the job. But there are many in the job who shouldn't be there. And God gave clear qualities that every leader in a church should have. And if you want to look at those, they're spelled out in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. A whole list. And you have heard of men who have broken families, who have uh, children that have apostatized, they have been involved in extramarital affairs, they've been arrested for drugs and for other scandalous deeds, and they are still standing behind a pulpit. Paul reminds the Corinthians or the Colossians that they weren't sinners and they should not look down at those still in their sin. But once a follower of Christ is held to a higher standard, once you become a follower of Christ, you are expected to behave in a certain way. And a pastor is even held to a higher standard because all eyes are on him. And one of the qualities that Paul mentions in 1 Timothy 3 is similar to what I mentioned in 1 Peter 5, was that a pastor should not seek ministry for his own benefit. And many of those that are in the pulpits that shouldn't be in the pulpits are there because they are there for their own desires. Some are in it for financial gain, and Scripture warns us about those people. Peter talks about in 2 Peter chapter 2, he says, False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned, and in their greed... They will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. It's a pretty serious consequence. Because the people under the teaching of a man behind a pulpit becomes convinced over time of what that person is saying. Especially if they aren't taught how to counter that with the scriptures themselves. But God has gifted the various men with skills and talents as excellent communicators, as explainers of scripture, counselors, comforters, administrators, and in the many other ways that men and women have been gifted in the church, especially men for being the pastors. 
And they've given, God has gifted those men for the benefit, not of themselves, but for the benefit of the church. Their stewardship and the gifts that they have been naturally given and have been taught over the years are to be used for God's church. And while someone might get a big head for drawing a crowd, that person must always remember that the ability and the aptitude in order to draw that crowd was given by God. I remember that when I was a new Christian, I was always amazed at how some people would uh, volunteer a whole year to watch kids for Sunday school. I just thought, wow, that was such a commitment for somebody to give a whole year of their life to teaching kids. But since God has given me the opportunity to go to seminary, I feel like that I have been given a stewardship. And I remember I had a professor that continued to say, what you've been given is a gift, and you must employ it. And I feel that God has given me this gift in order to expend it on others. And now serving is just something that I do. And as you exercise your gifts and the things that God has given you, the things, the talents that God has given you, you will see that God has gifted you with the certain attributes in your life, and you should use them for the benefit of others and the benefit of building up the church. And this is primarily what the pastor's job is. A pastor has been given the giftedness to carry out his duties, and he must employ them. The pastor has been given a great stewardship and that his occupation has been given by God. It's a rewarding job, but in many ways, there is no tougher job. So what are the responsibilities of a pastor? So first, he is God-appointed. And the second mark of a church-minded pastor is that he is sermon-focused. Paul says that he was given the stewardship so that I may fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Now Paul literally says the stewardship was given to make the word of God fulfilled. Paul is fulfilling the command that Jesus gave to bring the gospel to all the nations. And beyond that, Paul sees it as his goal to help them mature, help them mature and grow in Christ. God doesn't want just people to acknowledge who he is. Acknowledge that God exists. And many in churches might claim just that. I believe in God, but no further. But to be a follower of Jesus is not to just hear the occasional sermon or to give their time or money for a little bit or a little time here or there to certain causes, but it is to be fully devoted to Jesus Christ. I'm aware that this takes time. You know, again, as a new believer, I was amazed at the people that gave their time week after week to serve. And so it takes time to build up in order to see that that is just who you are as a Christian and that that is what you do, is that you give your time for the benefit of the body. But if you have committed yourself to Jesus, then it's similar to, to going swimming. You know, swimming is not just sticking your toe in the water. Swimming is fully immersing yourself in the water. It's getting wet, right? It's being engaged with the water. To be a believer in Christ, you are fully engaged and fully connected with the body of Christ. Paul saw it as his responsibility 
to explain the fullness of Christ to those whom he ministered to. He never held back, and he never kept things hidden. Now, one reason our church is so committed to the, the teaching that we do, preaching through books of the Bible, is that we want to explain fully what is in a book. We don't want to hide what an author is saying. We want to give the full weight of the argument, and we try to try to explain as best as we can what the author is saying, because we believe that he is saying what God was saying to the church at that time, what God is saying to the church at this time. And when people cut corners, though, dangers can arise. And false teaching can easily creep in. I mean, Paul has to, uh, later on in chapter 2, he has to address a lot of different false teachings that had started to creep in to the church because people were starting to doubt that Christ was enough for their salvation and Christ was enough for their walk. And Christ is enough. But as Paul then further says, Christ is enough for your salvation, but there are things that you are expected to do as a result of what you believe. But in verse 2-8, Paul gives this admonition before he starts to launch in at various these various false teachings. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the word, world rather than according to Christ. The church must not rely on their leaders to tell them what they need to know, but the church should rely on their leaders to help them be able to test whether what they're saying is true to the word of God. I don't want you to walk out of here and say what he said was true because of what, where I'm standing and the position that I'm in. It's because you've been taught to say what he's saying is true because I've read that elsewhere in scripture. He supported it with other places in scripture. Paul said to Timothy, he said, I want you to preach the word and be ready in season and out of season. I want you to reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. The reason that a lot of you come to this church is because you see how wonderfully knit together all of Scripture is. And even though we won't cover all of the Bible... We will at least try to turn over every stone that's in a particular book as we explain what the author is trying to say. And every pastor here at the church is to be focused on what the text says and to be preaching that as clearly as possible. Hopefully you don't fall prey to some of the dangers and we focus too much on the stones and not the stonework of what that fully embraces. Because Paul's focus, as should ours, is to make known, he says, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints. Now, Paul's not saying that he, he discovered something new, that it was a mystery. You have no idea. I've been given some new teaching, and I'm now disclosing it to you. He said, he's saying, well, first, his audience is mostly of Gentiles, and so the message that he is speaking to them, they had not heard before. But the mystery was, is that in the Old Testament, a Messiah was proclaimed that there would be uh, a man that would come 
and that would save his people. And he knows who that person is. He knows that it is Jesus Christ, and he is explaining to the Gentiles who had never heard of Jesus Christ, or even the fact that a Messiah would come and explaining that mystery. That mystery to them was unknown, and now through his proclamation, it can be known. And this is a huge statement because for most people, Jesus is a mystery to them. You know, it's not that people have never heard of Jesus. You know, certainly some have or have not. But many people misunderstand who he is and why he's so important. Now, he's the way to peace and he's the way to fulfillment. But most importantly, he is the way to redemption. And people will continue to live their lives with this mystery never being solved for them unless somebody can connect the dots. And God uses his pastors to preach in order to help his people become complete in Christ. When Jesus restored Peter, Jesus told him to feed my sheep. One of the primary responsibilities of a pastor, of a shepherd, is to feed the people of God the spiritual meal that they need to eat. And this comes primarily through the preaching of God's word. Now, if you were hungry and you needed food, would you expect me to feed you one large meal one time a week and that would help sustain you? No. You know, the whole reason we come together to hear a sermon on Sunday mornings is that you are fed together as a family. And that feeding is to help you be so overjoyed by the meal that you want to experience it throughout the week. You know, sermons need to help prompt people to change in their attitudes, but also desire that they feed themselves. That is how preaching helps make a person more complete in Christ. I remember when I was in San Diego, we uh, followed under uh, a big church movement. It was very pragmatic. We did things where we would, uh, I was on the um, kind of uh, the sermon team, or the, the, the service team, where we would try to map out what songs we would play, we would kind of emotionally, you know, uh, graph out, we would like put these little charts and say, let's play an emotional song here, emotional song there, insert drama here, and it felt very um, dry, it felt very pragmatic, like we were trying to like uh, manipulate the people, and the pastor ended up stepping down from that church uh, because of an issue, he had some, some sin issue that he didn't fully disclose, but said he needed to take some time away. But at that time, we're, my wife and I were feeling pretty spiritually dry. We were hungry, but we weren't being fed at the church. And we had an interim pastor that came in, but he didn't do much to kind of uh, feed us what we needed. And I remember, um, one of the guys at our church invited uh, a pastor that he knew to come and preach. And I remember the sermon that he preached was out of Ephesians 6 and the armor of God. And what he did was he looked at each piece of armor and he just backed it up with scripture. Hey, over here it's explained this part in scripture and over here it's explained here. And all of a sudden the Bible just kind of like came together instead of all these little bits and pieces of stories and, and things that, you know, never heard. It was like one woven tapestry. And I remember after that time we asked him to come again. And, and uh, eventually we asked this man to be our pastor 
And what that did was just it lit a fire and ignited us to want to know more. And so we started reading books. We started diving into our scripture more because we wanted to see what the word of God said. But we really didn't know how to do it until he just started giving us an example. And that's one of the reasons that we preach the way we preach is to help you guys see how you can look at scripture and dive into scripture and back it up with other portions of scripture and how it all ties together. And so we were hungry for more. We were fed, but now we felt like we could make ourselves a meal. And it prompted us to just want to eat more and more and more. We became gluttonous on the word of God. And I think that's one sign that gluttony is actually a spiritual virtue. Superficial teaching only goes so far. If someone isn't truly hungering for the word of God, they'll be looking to be entertained. As Timothy said, they're going to be looking to what tickles their ears and just tell them what they want to hear. But if someone wants to know what God says and can teach in a way that helps others to do the same, they know that this preaching and this teaching can be truly life-transforming. You know, there can be a danger, though. Sometimes a church can be overly focused on teaching. And the Ephesian church was guilty of that. In Revelation. And, and so as a, as a church, we can't be so focused on proclaiming the truth that we forget that our mission is also to reach the lost. It is a pastor's responsibility to help the church stay focused. And it's the shepherd's job to keep the sheep moving as a group to the right places to be watered and to be fed and even to be protected. Now, Paul said that that mystery has now been manifested to his saints. It is God's gift that God's mission to save the lost is in place in our hands. We are the harbingers of the gospel. And we are the ones that are carrying that torch. Paul says we are the ones to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. We are to proclaim God's excellencies near and far, and we are to help others understand their sinfulness, but at the same time know that Christ has died for their sin. And that mystery is not just some tidbit of knowledge. It is, as Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. I mean, the Spirit of Christ resides in every believer. And the main message that Jesus had to offer was the hope of glory, that he was the hope of glory. The only hope for mankind to be in the presence of God's glory is through Jesus Christ. We have that knowledge. We have that power inside of us. And someone might say, well, if Christ is in you, how come I don't see it? How come I see Christians sinning? How come there is hypocrisy within the church? That's a fantastic question. And we know that even though we've been saved... It doesn't mean we're free from sin. We fall to the same temptations, and suddenly we take our eyes off Christ and follow our own desires. But that question leads us to this next point that Paul reveals. The other necessary quality of the church-minded pastor is that in addition to be Savior-appointed and sermon-focused, he is to be spiritually concerned. Paul says, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Paul says that we, 
meaning he and his ministry companions, proclaim Jesus Christ. Again, that reiterates the importance of preaching and teaching. It also emphasizes the fact that someone is to know about Jesus, you're going to have to tell them. And not many people are going to be won over by your life alone. Paul says in addition to proclaiming Christ, that they admonish every man. This is where the idea about being spiritually concerned, that the pastor is spiritually concerned about the spirituality of each of his sheep. Now the word admonish here is nuthetantes, which for those involved in the counseling conference may recognize where we get the word nuthetic counseling from. That word uh, nuthateo can be translated as to warn or to uh, instruct. Both of these are applicable and can be used to help guide somebody who may be going wayward, whether into sin or just wrong thinking. Jay Adams defines it as such. He says, Nuthetic counseling consists of lovingly confronting people out of the deep concern in order to help them make those changes that God requires. And when Jesus restored Peter, going back to that, again, illustration, he says that he asked him to tend, or as the New American Standard Version says, to pastor his sheep. This, this you know, implies a close attention paid to the particular needs for the church. And we hold fast to the proclamation of Paul to his prodigy, Timothy, where he said, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And we truly believe here that people's spiritual problems, all of spiritual problems, can be addressed through the Bible, even the messy ones. You know, as you just think about the sermon that we heard this morning, that people whose lives are unimaginably more horrific than ours, that have experienced far deeper scars and pains than we would ever imagine, can be healed through the Word of God. And we believe that the Word of God can do it, and that it is able to do that. We can't farm out our problems inside the church to outside so-called experts. We must be the experts. We believe that the Bible is clear that the experts aren't to be just a few in the church, but there are to be many. We must all, in some measure, be ready to do this. But this takes work, and it takes a lot of hard work. I mean, it's easier to specialize in one area and to send someone else to do the rest. But the body of Christ is a full body. The local church is to take care of its own needs. Now, there's one, times where one church may be gifted at doing something than another. And again, we just look at the, the, the counseling conference here that God has gifted us in order to be able to help others. But our goal is to help others in order to help themselves and to meet the needs of those within the church. And when a whole church holds back its teaching, it stunts the growth of the body. And I don't mean numerically, because there are plenty of churches who, whose attendance you know, exceeds ours by 10 or 20 fold. But how deep are they really going? Are the messages recycled? Are the people feeling like they can find answers to the needs that they have on their own? 
Are the people being fed a full and satisfying meal or just some meager table scraps? But what also lacks at some of these churches is not just in the preaching, but the accessibility of the pastor to the sheep and the people to the pastor. Now, how can a pastor rebuke and correct to warn that somebody is going off course if they don't even really know their people? Now, being at a large church, this can be difficult. I mean, in seminary, I was at a large church in California, and the church that we attended had thousands of people. And the structure that they had, I mean, it was, it was, it was basically set up where uh, people went to what they called Big Church, which is the large gathering, and then you went to kind of what we have, you know, in our Bible studies, they called it a fellowship group, and it was basically another church service where you went from several thousand to maybe 200 in order to get a more intimate gathering. And then we met uh, every other week in people's homes where we got from that 200 to maybe down to 50. And so there was a lot more coming together and trying to have more accountability and accessibility. But even in a large church, their pastors had a lot of responsibilities. And sometimes it was hard in order to gain access to those pastors. But not just for the practical reasons. The author of Hebrews says, in Hebrews 13, 7, he says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. How can you imitate a person who you cannot have access to? I mean, even at a large church, it was hard to access some of the pastors because they were busy. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't try as best as they could, and it doesn't mean that, you know, a certain areas of ministry were being neglected, or that they should be neglected. But the pastor whose mind is truly on the church, whom he has been made a minister to, will access and be accessible to his people. And the pastor, while loving the people where they are, aims to move the people further along in their walk with Christ, whether it's their first step or beyond. But this takes work, and it takes a lot of work, which leads again to the next necessary quality of a church-minded pastor that Paul speaks about. I've termed this sweat expended, and so I take this from the phrase, for this purpose also I labor. That word labor is a pretty loaded word. I mean, it means specifically to fatigue or to be worn out by work. It's that feeling of exhaustion that we've all experienced at one time or another, expending your energy on something. We've probably all experienced it. And if I said I labored this week on this sermon, you would understand that I tried to work hard on it. And the word labor, as it's commonly used to describe the process of childbirth, is no understatement. My wife asked me the other day, I'm not sure why. She said, of, our three, of my three pregnancies, what do you think was the most traumatic labor that I had? Now, how often can you use the word traumatic and labor and still smile about it? Because the payoff was great. And the payoff was obviously, you know, something we had been anticipating. But after her labor, it was extremely tiring. And she was completely spent and exhausted. And so I dodged the question because I really didn't know how to answer it. <laughs> and I wasn't the one going through it. So I felt like if anyone would answer that question adequately, she might. Now Paul said to Timothy, 
In 1 Timothy 4, 7, he said, I want you to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, for it is for this that we labor and strive, because we fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Remember that toiling and even that pain in childbirth is a result of the curse in the Garden of Eden. And to Adam, God said in Genesis 3, he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten from the tree you shall, that you should not eat from, cursed is the ground because of you, and toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat your bread until you return to the ground. Now, what is it that you labor on in life? What do you expend your energy towards in your job or your family or even in your spiritual walk? I mean, just think about it for a minute. When was the last time you were exhausted? And Paul talks about, I mean, if we look at right before uh, we get to the passage, he says, or he says that he is suffering for the sake of the Colossians. And the verse after in chapter 2, he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. He, he just didn't think about the Colossians every once in a while. He expended energy on them. Now think of the energy that you've expended. And I want you to think that the pastor is expending his energy on you. I mean, can you believe that? The pastor is expending his energy on you. Now there are some pastors that do get away with the bare minimum... You know, like the example that I, I shared at the beginning, some people that clock in and clock out, they prepare for eight-minute sermons, and that's it. And I've seen it firsthand, and it's pretty devastating, because it ends up making the people spiritually dry and languishing and feeling like they aren't being fed. Because it's hard work to feed the flock. And isn't the first time that that's happened. I mean, often throughout the Old Testament, if you turn to Malachi, which is right before Matthew, I just want to look at a portion of Scripture, kind of the attitude of the priests. It's, not, it's shortly after that the priests had, uh, or that the people had been returned out of captivity, and they had restored the temple, and and, uh, and God has to chastise his priests for failing to do something that's pretty simple. If you thought, well, what was the biggest thing that the priest was involved in or did, we almost always think about the sacrifices. And God often rebuked his shepherds or his priests. But in Malachi 1, verse 6, God rebukes him and he says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? And he says, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar. And you say, well, how have we defiled you? I mean, they're completely in shock. They don't know. 
And he says, in it that you say the tale of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is that not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? I mean, they were offering sacrifices. One, they're not supposed to offer anything but an unblemished uh, sacrifice. And they're offering things that are lame or uh, blind because it's kind of table scraps. I'm just going to get rid of it anyway. I might as well just give this to God. He says, would your governor be pleased with that? But now you will not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering. For from the rising of the sun, even to his setting, my name will be great among the nations, and every place that incense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it, and that you say, The table of the Lord is to be defiled, and as for its fruit... It's to be despised. And then they even say, how tiresome it is. They're just getting tired of doing these sacrifices, even the sacrifices that aren't worthy of God's honor. And you disdainfully sniff at it. And you bring what was taken of robbery and what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord. And I think some ministers today, they offer what is lame and deficient to God. And then even in that, they say, oh, how I labor and how tiresome I am for doing it. But I want to talk to you about your pastors here, especially one of your most visible pastors. You know, Shane is one of the most hardworking pastors that I have met. And you might think that preparing for a sermon is just one part, you know, it's just the main job. All you have to do is show up on Sundays, just make sure that you don't say anything too heretical for an hour, and then, then you go. Then you get the rest of the week to go play golf and do whatever you need to do. But it's not that easy, because imagine getting up every single week in front of your family, in front of your friends, in front of people that are hostile to what you're going to say, and then you're going to tell them what God said to a people who lived thousands of years ago. And then apply that to your life today. And not only to people who have never heard the Bible before, but people who have studied it well. Like many of you here. People who have seminary degrees and people who have read through the Bible numerous times. Who have even taught over the same portion of scripture that you have to teach through. That's only one portion of the job, is delivering the sermon. You know, the pastor's also to make sure that you're getting fed and growing, and that you are recovering from your difficulties. I mean, new parents with young children, after you've like made this elaborate meal, and you've put the plate in front of them, and they've kind of said, I don't really care for it right now, and then they want to go off and play, and you sit there and you try to get them to eat as much as they can, but they just aren't interested. You then look at the dishes and all the mess you've had to make and clean up after them. And you have to get them ready for bed and brush their teeth and everything else. And so not only is it just preparing a sermon and hopefully preparing a meal that you guys are going to enjoy, 
Sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. But it's also caring for the needs that you have day in and day out throughout the week. The pastor, your pastor here, comes in early. He stays late. I mean, Shane has got a full schedule. I don't know his schedule down pat, but, you know, the times that I see him, he's here on Sundays. On Tuesday morning, he's early for prayer meetings. On Wednesday morning, he's preaching a seminary class. On Thursday, he's flying out to Raleigh. On Friday, he's meeting with people. He's got all the other needs of meeting with elders and meeting with people throughout the week. And when I was in, you know, when I was in uh, seminary, I had only met him on a weekend you know, time that I had come to visit my mom who lived nearby. And uh, I remember thinking, you know, he's very busy, he's very involved. And any time I called, he would stop and pick up the phone and, and, and speak to me. I felt like he was my pastor even though I was not here at this church. And if you have never experienced that, this man is accessible to you. And that's a great place to be at this church and to, and to be in a place like ours that we can look and see how this man works hard and labors. And we can strive to do the same because he labors for this church. And not only, you know, throughout the day, but he's on call at night. Don't call him at night. You don't have to. But, <laughs> but he would be. Sometimes there are those crises that happen in the middle of the night, and your pastors are here. I know some pastors have to come and address alarms in the middle of the night and things like that. They care, take care of the church, and that's what a pastor is here for. I mean, the shepherd, the shepherd wasn't a glorious job. And the people that took the job as a shepherd wasn't because they were going to make a lot of money. It was usually a lower class job because the work was hard. They moved sheep from one place to another. It wasn't too exciting. But if there were uh, predators that came, that shepherd had to protect the flock and had to make sure that the flock was cared for. And it wasn't usually his flock. It was a flock that he was looking after for somebody else. And most people didn't take it because it was hard work and the responsibilities were great. And a shepherd of God's flock feels the same weight of responsibility to Jesus Christ, who's entrusted his people to their care. And the burden for families in this church does not go away. I mean, you don't clock out of the pastor position. I mean, you may learn to turn off some burdens here and there, but there are times that you'll lose sleep because of somebody's spiritual welfare that you are concerned about. And sometimes... You know, one week of counsel is enough, but more times than not, counseling sessions take numerous weeks and sometimes extend over years. To say a pastor labors, you know, if that pastor is doing what he's been called to do, can be an understatement. And burnout can be high in ministry, because a pastor can't do all these things in his own strength. If he does, he will fail. Which is why the pastor is given the help by the Holy Spirit. And that's the fifth quality. He's spirit enabled. Paul says he labors, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. More literally, he says, I toil, struggling or striving according to all the energy that he powerfully works within me. 
A man cannot carry the burdens of the church on his shoulders. It's just way too much. And practically speaking, that's why there are several pastors in this church, all devoted to the same goal of feeding and caring for and protecting the flock, and some doing it and tackling it in different ways. Now, some churches are great organizational structures. And they build large churches focused on growth. And while some may do a good job, I've found that often the process lacks the power of the Holy Spirit. Just like modeling an emotional chart of what song is best sometimes takes out the desire and the power of the Holy Spirit. And you don't need God if you want to grow a church. I mean, you can gather a crowd with the right components. I mean, you can turn on the TV and right before your eyes you can see people gathering in large coliseums to hear a teaching of a pastor. But what he says is far from what God reveals in Scripture. A man can build a church. But remember, the word ecclesia is just a gathering. That word for church is just a gathering. Because a man can build a gathering. He can build a crowd. But a man cannot build Jesus' church. And that is his job. And that only comes through the work of the Holy Spirit. The pastor must rely on the Holy Spirit's leading. Let me flip through a couple verses for you, and, and if you want to turn to John 14, of what the work of the Holy Spirit is in the believer's life, and why it's so powerfully necessary in the pastor's life. Now John, and, uh, John is writing about when Jesus is telling them about a helper that Jesus is going to send. In John 14, verses 16 through 18, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. And that is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him, but you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And then if you go down to verse 24, he says, He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who has sent me. There's a spirit that will reveal these things to the believers. And turning to chapter 16, verse 13 through 15, the spirit is, but then he, when, the, when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Now the Spirit does not only enable a person what to say, but also gives a person the strength to do it. Because remember Jesus said in Matthew 11, he said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now all of the energy and the power of the creator of this universe is at the disposal of the believer. And it is that energy that works in the life of the pastor. So how do we respond to this message about what a pastor is supposed to be and what his qualities should be? Well, first, I think we need to have a deep appreciation for those who toil in the ministry. It is not for their gain, but ultimately it is for our gain. Their goal and their desire is to make us complete in Christ. 
even if sometimes we fight against that. And whether being complete in Christ is just being introduced to Jesus Christ or we made fully complete the day that he arrives, that is his goal and we must appreciate the pastor for that. Second, we must be able to serve our pastors. We can lift burdens off their plate as they work to lift burdens off of our shoulders. And we can do that in various ways by counseling others, people's needs, and just looking to serve our pastors, however we may be able. Third, we can encourage our pastors. They're not perfect, but they're trying, and they'll mess up. And we can encourage them whenever we can. Fourth, we must respect the decisions of the pastors. We won't always agree, and sometimes decisions they make may be misguided. But we must trust that God has entrusted us in their care for a reason, and we should support them, the pastors and all the elders here. And fifth, don't idolize your pastor. They labor for us and they toil for us, but they are sinners too. Now Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So what we can have as our goal to model our lives after a pastor, but don't place them too high on a pedestal. Now, why do I say this? Because I've seen the devastating impact that can happen in a ministry when a pastor falls. And, and you know, we pray that that never happens here at this church. And as long as they are continuing to have the right focus and their eyes on Christ, that hopefully will never happen. Remember that this is Christ's church. And that a pastor can and will be replaced because Christ's church will go on forever. And so as we see the necessary qualities of a church-minded pastor, and what those qualities should be, to be Savior-appointed, sermon-focused, spiritually concerned, sweat-expending, and spirit-led, can we conclude that our pastors are like this? It's a question you're all going to have to answer for your, yourself, but I can confidently answer that for myself. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us pastors and leaders and shepherds that are looking out for the care of our souls, Lord, people that we can look at and model our lives after. We're so thankful for how you've gifted and shaped various men. I pray, Lord, that when they are discouraged, that we can help encourage them, that when they are faltering, that we can uh, gently help them to get back on track. May their focus always be for your glory, and may they always seek to help us to be more complete in Christ, because we know that is what ultimately glorifies you. We thank you for this evening and this time to study your word. In Jesus' name, amen.